Good morning, church. My name is Stephanie. I'm a member here at Redemption. Our reading for this morning is Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and give them drink. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. How good it is to worship together. And I, I love when the instruments cut out and you just hear the voices sing, All I Have is Christ. Today we're going to look at uh, Psalm 36 in a message I've entitled, A Love That Protects. Now the thing about the Psalms, and this is no exception, is oftentimes we, we don't know much about the setting. We, we don't know much about the setting of this psalm other than that it is attributed to David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, and as we know, a man after God's own heart. And we know, given that it's located in the poetic section of the Bible, that it is a song or a poem that David wrote. And we also know, if we've ever listened to songs, which we certainly have, or read poetry, that whenever a song or a poem is written, it contains words that, that there's been given a lot of thought to, words that run deep, words that come out of the heart, whether it's about love or family, or if it's a country music song like I know Danny listens to all the time, it's, a, it's about your truck or your dog or your sweetheart or your guns or any number of things. The bottom line is, is it generally flows out of something that is important to the person who wrote it. It flows out of their heart. I recently read something uh, that speaks how powerful words of poetry can be. I put it on the screen for you. Poetic language has the power to cultivate sentiments in the audience that lie deep within the human breast and to which mere prose or rational argument cannot gain access. I think there's a lot of truth to this. 
And when you add that in God's word, it is God-breathed, it takes it to a whole different level. And such is the case with the Psalms. We can only speculate the setting in which David wrote this. Was it while hiding from Saul in the caves of En Gedi, with Saul in hot pursuit, vivid memories of the spear that he had thrown at David? Was it David grieving the estrangement of his son Absalom due to his own sin? Or was he simply tired of the wickedness that was all around him? We don't know with certainty, but we do know that he wrote it. And we know that he wrote what was flowing out of his heart. And we do know that God chose to preserve it these many thousands of years. Which begs the question, wouldn't it have uh, been better had he just focused on the steadfast love of God? This is what's interesting about this psalm. It's sandwiched in between verses on the wickedness of man and in between we read some of the most beautiful and comforting scriptures speaking to the steadfastness of the love of God. And I think it begs the question that why couldn't we have just left the wicked stuff out and just get right to the steadfast love part? I remember years ago when we were getting the church started back in the early 2000s in the state of Washington, I was working part-time as a bookkeeper and I was having lunch with my boss and I began to share the gospel with her. She wasn't a believer, and she was tracking right along, yes, 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 until I got to the sin part, until I got to the devil part and evil. And that's when she interrupted me, and she said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't do the devil thing. And there are a lot of people like that, aren't there? There may be some of you here this morning where we're tired of the devil thing. We're tired of evil. I don't want to do the wicked thing. It's just all about love. That's what I'm interested in. However, David, he, he doesn't see it that way. And what he writes here is perfect because what it does is the way he wrote it, it actually sets the stage for the big idea of what Psalm 36 is all about. Look at it with me. The big idea is that God's steadfast love is our protection from the wickedness that surrounds us. And so what David does is he introduces us to the heart of what Psalm 36 is all about by first talking about the wicked. Look at verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. I can't help but think of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where he said, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We live in a dark world. And it shouldn't surprise us because Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied of these days. In Isaiah chapter 5, he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You see, as soon as you make the truth relative to whatever you think truth is, you open the door to all kinds of chaos. Just watch the previews of the newest movies that are coming out. You get a snapshot of how dark our world has become. I recently listened to an interview where Leonardo DiCaprio was asked by the host, what was the single most important acting lesson he learned from working with the famed director Martin Scorsese? And it was in the context of of Leonardo at the time being directed by Scorsese in a very foul and dark movie that pushed the limits of decadence. It was a film that came out in 2013. And think about where we are today. And DiCaprio told the host the advice this acclaimed director had given him. I put it on the screen. And Scorsese said this to DiCaprio, as long as you're honest and authentic about your portrayal of who these people are, no matter how despicable at times, no matter what part of the dark nature of humanity you are exploring, audiences will always connect with that and go along with that journey with you. And DiCaprio concluded, and that's what I found with my career, and that makes sense. Now, why does it make sense? Well, Paul tells us in his letter to the church in Ephesus, it makes sense because Ephesians chapter 2 says, without Christ, people are dead in trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And don't miss this, were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. People in their unregenerate state, they naturally do the devil thing and with no remorse. And we must be careful as Christians to think, wow, this world is so evil. I'm glad I'm not like that. I better round up my family and go hide in the Christian bubble until the Lord comes back. No. We must reflect on the words of Scripture, the words of Paul to the church at Colossae. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Thanks be to God. This is what David is getting at. And I'm more convinced than ever after 40 years of walking with Christ that the more I keep in touch with my tendency towards depravity and sin, the more quickly and securely I cling to Jesus. 
and I live my life with the understanding of the truth of our Savior's words, without me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. That's why we sing with such confidence, all I have is Christ. And David continues in verse 3, the words of his mouth, that is the wicked, are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. In other words, he thinks about, he schemes and plans. Just consider the scams that exist out there, stealing millions of dollars, zeroing in on the most vulnerable. Uh, my wife Jenny and I, we got scammed for $1,000 when we moved here. Uh, trying to reserve an apartment while we looked for a house. We, we jumped through every, we cleared it from every avenue you could think of, and we still got scammed. And he wanted even more, but we thought, no, 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 no. And why is that? Because he laid at night thinking about, how can I make money at other people's expense? Take some time this week to read and meditate on 2 Timothy chapter 3. To our knowledge, it's his last letter before being executed for his faith. And in that chapter, he speaks of the times of difficulty that will come in the last days. I think we're in the last days. He presents a litany of things that will happen, and a few that really jump out to me. Think about them in the context of what we see in the world today. He writes this, people will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power, always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. People who oppose the truth corrupted in mind. Can we agree that we live in a world that abounds in wickedness? And David understood wickedness. He understood it on two fronts. He understood the wickedness of others like Saul and other foreign kings and his own son who sought to take David's life. But we mustn't forget that he also had a keen understanding of his own wickedness and the ugliness of his own heart. And you see, what made David a man after God's own heart was not that he was perfect, was not that he didn't struggle with sin, but that in the end, whenever he faced uh, he was faced with his own depravity and his own ugly heart. He understood something the Lord would have us keep in the forefront of our minds and our hearts. We have a merciful God who loves us with a steadfast love that protects us from evil and saves us in spite of ourselves. You know how easy it can be to point our fingers to the wickedness of the world, and we forget the three fingers that are pointing right back at us. Jeremiah the prophet writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There's nothing hidden from God's sight. You know, that's either disturbing or comforting. I find it comforting. Because I can just walk and pray, and, and I don't have to hold back. He already knows it. He knows what's going on. Do you remember when David was confronted by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband, a faithful soldier in David's army? 
And when he was confronted, what did he do? He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, don't you understand? I'm the king. No. He cried out to God, against you and only you have I sinned. And of course he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. But you see, David understood that the root of his sin, the far greater sin, was that he had disregarded the commandments of God. This account of his repentance found in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is a powerful picture of heartfelt, genuine repentance. Now imagine if we closed our Bibles here. I dismissed you and I said, well, God bless you. Have a nice day. Enjoy the Sunday fun day. After all, Tim is buying lunch. That'd be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Left to process the wickedness of man, the world, my own heart. But good news, because David doesn't end there. He's just setting the stage. And now he turns toward the steadfastness of God, to the solution. And he tells us three things about God's steadfast love. Truths which sustain us no matter how difficult times may get, no matter how wicked the world becomes. And while the enemy seeks to discourage us, to distract us, by calling evil good and good evil and light dark and dark light, David encourages us by answering this question you'll see on the screen. Where does our protection from wickedness come from? So what we have in the middle of this wicked sandwich, beginning in verse 5, David tells us three truths about the steadfast love of God, a love that protects us from all evil. He'll tell us three things. First, that God's steadfast love is immeasurable. Second, that God's steadfast love is precious. And third, God's steadfast love endures forever. This is good news. The first found in verses 5 and 6. God's steadfast love is immeasurable. Look at it with me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. Now I want to pause there a moment because this word steadfast is very important in Scripture. It comes from a Hebrew word, chesed, and it's used 240 times in the Old Testament and is especially frequent in the Psalms, 130 times. And there seems to be three basic meanings of the word which always seem to interact, strength, steadfast, love. And when it's used with man as the subject, it speaks of God's loving kindness offered to his people who need redemption from sin and enemies and troubles, and it points us directly to Jesus. Another word most commonly used associated with chesed is emet, which means fidelity, reliability. God's steadfast love is reliable. Look at Psalm 40 on the screen. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, your chesed, and your faithfulness, Emet, will ever preserve me. 
we can rely on God's steadfast love. And notice what David writes in verse 5 about how far God's love reaches to the heavens and to the clouds. That's a long way. In another psalm, Psalm 57, David writes the same thing. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And what's interesting about that psalm is he's writing it while in a cave hiding from Saul who was looking to kill him. Just picture the setting. A candle or a dim fire, a musty smell, critters' eyes lurking in the dark. That freaks me out just thinking about it. I mean, spelunkers, I, no wonder they call it spelunking. It makes no sense. Why would you go into a dark cave? And here he is, and he writes, your steadfast love. I can rely on it. Even though somebody's pursuing me, I can rely on it. God's righteousness, verse 6, demonstrated through the righteousness of Christ are like the mountains, and his judgments are like the great deep. And yet, what do we read here? Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Oh, how encouraging this is to us which leads to our first application. Because God's steadfast love is immeasurable, it will never run out. We cannot exhaust God's love. In my first couple of years as a Christian, I heard a pastor say, no matter how hard you strive into, in regards to knowing God, you will never arrive. What a depressing thought, you may think. It's like no matter how long you drive, you're never going to get there. Well, it's not depressing. Let's look together on the screen at Psalm 139, just the first part of it. Another Psalm of David. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? When we go to bed with the, work, with the wickedness of the world on our minds and hearts, worried about the future of our children and grandchildren, we can sleep well and rest easy at peace with God while fast asleep. Now, how is that possible? Because Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit is revealing truth to our hearts Bearing witness with our children, with our spirits that we're children of God. So no matter how bummed out you are, you just go, okay. And know that the Holy Spirit's just reminding you that as a child of God, if you are in Christ, you're a co-heir to the kingdom. And what do we need to worry about at that point? We'll spend the rest of our lives discovering all there is about God and never before. It's a glorious truth about who God is and his steadfast love. And if, we're, if that were not enough, Jeremiah tells us in Lamentation that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. In fact, they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
Listen, no matter what heaviness is on our hearts when we go to bed, even if the heaviness is self-inflicted, we wake up to a fresh batch of mercies every morning, not receiving what we deserve, a reminder of what? A reminder of the cross. And all is well. How can it not be? This is why we don't have to worry or be anxious, as Jesus spoke on the Mount of Beatitudes. Don't be anxious in the way that the world is anxious. God, your Father, knows all you need. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. I love Psalm 4610, just the first part of that verse. Be still and know that I'm God. Hey, yeah, be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. The next time you find yourself just anxious, worried, concerned, you just heard something on the news, you, you, just anything, just shh, be still and know that he's God and that he's steadfast. The second thing we learn from our text is that God's steadfast love is precious. Look at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The steadfast love of God is precious. It speaks to how valuable it is to our lives. O oh God, the children of mankind, he writes, takes refuge amidst the wickedness in the shadow of your wings. The image here is glorious. Uh, look with me on the screen at uh, uh, Psalm 57. Again, remember, he's writing this from a cave. Be merciful to me, O oh God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction Pass by. If you've ever heard this song, When I Look Into Your Holiness, it's a beautiful song. I'll never forget when I first heard it, the words captivated me. When I look into your holiness, when I gaze into your loveliness, when all things that surround become shadows in the light of you. And I remember thinking about when, when would that be? When would everything else become a shadow? I thought about the sun and light casting shadows. And it dawned on me that the only way that everything surrounding the light source becomes a shadow is when you're so close to the light source that it casts a shadow on everything else. It's a beautiful picture of what happens when we're closest to the Lord. We must stay close to Jesus. Because the steadfast love of God is precious, our second application, we must guard it with our lives. Where do we keep precious, valuable things? We keep them in safe and hidden places. Where do we keep God's truths, in particular the truths about God's steadfast love? We keep it in our hearts. We keep things we value the most in a safe place, in a place that no one else can get to. Many of us are familiar with Psalm 119, 176 verses, all of them extolling the virtue of God's word. Don't rush through it. And you're reading along and you come to verse 9, 
And it says, uh, or, or each one of those verses uh, are just preaching of God's word. And you come along verse 9 and it says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up, this word means hidden, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Oh, how important it is that we protect God's steadfast love from any sort of corruption. We must hide it in our hearts, guarding it from anything that might threaten the preciousness, the value of God's steadfast love. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he tells us that we mustn't be deceived by thinking that, we, that what we expose our hearts to doesn't matter. Do not be deceived, he writes. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So how do we guard our hearts from being deceived and as a result contaminating the preciousness of God's love? Well, we consider again what the author of Hebrews wrote. We lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily ensnares us. We, we must be aware of the things that entrap us and guard ourselves from them. And we run the race with an endurance looking Unto who? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what one of the joys set before him was? Us. His church. His bride being with him. In a new heaven, in a new earth, for all eternity. We must guard our hearts from what we allow to enter it. I remember the very first worship camp many years ago that I went to. It was actually in Minneapolis. And the conference speaker was talking about how important it was that we as worship leaders uh, guarded what we listened to before leading worship. That we were careful with what we were filling our minds with. And then he graphically made the point, you can't expect to eat garlic all day and burp spearmint at night. You get the picture. God is not mocked. We must guard ourselves of what we fill our minds and our hearts with. God's steadfast love is immeasurable. God's steadfast love is precious. And lastly, we see that God's steadfast love endures forever. Look at verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. David appeals to the Lord to continue something that he understood would never stop. He understood it quite well. The eternalness, the foreverness of God and his steadfast love. Take some time this week to read through Psalm 136. 26 verses, each one ending with what? For his steadfast love endures, how long? Forever. Everyone thinks about forever. Everyone. Even the most unregenerate sinner that only Christ can reach 
thinks about eternity. God made sure of it, and Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, he recorded it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart. How long is eternity? You know, we think, uh, oh, man, it's, man our, our nation's so old. No. Think of eternity. Whenever I try to grasp eternity, I think of what my dad would say, and I never grew tired of hearing it. I never grew tired of thinking about it because it puts it into perspective. He said, son, if the earth were a solid brass ball and every 1,000 years a dove flew by and brushed its wing against the earth, by the time that brass ball wore down to the size of a BB, caused by the brushing of the dove's wing against its surface, that would be the beginning of eternity. Because God's steadfast love endures forever, our third application, we don't have to worry. <laughs> we don't have to worry. It's been said that 99% of the things we worry about never happens, so worrying must work. Well, that's nothing more than a clever way to justify worrying. Listen. Truly, because God's steadfast love endures forever, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to direct us and lead us into all truth, we don't have to worry about anything, especially death. Paul understood this, and in his letter to the Christians in Rome, at a time when Christians were being put to death, he wrote this. If God be for us, who can be against us? For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because God's steadfast love is immeasurable, we cannot exhaust it. Because God's steadfast love is precious, we guard it with our lives. And because God's steadfast love endures forever, we don't have to worry. David concludes this psalm with an appeal to the Lord for protection from the wicked. With an interesting caveat that we should take to heart. Look at verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Church, one of our greatest defenses against the wickedness of this world is our humility. And it is the arrogance of mankind in all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, where we see people's desire to do their own thing, to create a God and a theology that fits what they want, 
that leads to their ultimate downfall. May it never be with us. We must remain humble, and we will remain humble as long as our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the greatest demonstration and picture of God's steadfast love. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Paul so aptly said this in his letter to the Christians in Rome. And, and I just want to encourage you that every time you read Scripture, we're reading something that somebody wrote. I think sometimes we can lose sight of that in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, page so-and-so in your pew Bibles and everything, and we forget these are things that people wrote and even died for that God has preserved for thousands of years for us today. Look at verse 6, Romans 5. For while we were weak, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, his immeasurable, precious, enduring love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, and I might add, protected from the wickedness of this world. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Father God, we thank you, we praise you for the precious blood that was poured out on our behalf. And we pray, Lord God, for every soul represented in our church today. Especially, Lord, for anyone who maybe have, have not experienced that regeneration that only comes by faith and faith alone. That only comes when the Holy Spirit pricks our hearts and draws us to a place of understanding the wickedness of the world, the wickedness of our hearts, and our desperate need for a Savior. Thank you, Lord. For saving us. Thank you, Lord, for preserving us. Help us to live out our lives with the confidence that your steadfast love is immeasurable, is precious, and is and will endure forever.
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.